This episode is sponsored by Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash spoiler and using promo code SERIALSPOILER at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. We're also sponsored by Audible, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial at www.audible.com slash SERIALSPOILER. Hello and welcome to Slate's Serial Spoiler Special. I'm Slate Senior Editor Gabriel Roth. Joining me from our DC studio is Slate's Words Correspondent Katie Waldman. Hi, Katie. Hi, Gabe. Every week, Katie and I and our guests will be discussing Season 2 of the popular podcast Serial, going deeper into the show's themes, exploring its characters and situations, and looking at the ways in which it reverberates in the world. This week, we're joined by New York Magazine editor-at-large Carl Swanson, who recently wrote an extensive piece on the making of Serial's second season with exclusive access to Sarah Koenig and many of the other creators and producers of the show. Carl, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Katie, tell us, how did you, what did you come away from this episode feeling? Well, there's a lot of torture. There are a lot of kind of eviscerating details, um, such as when Bo recalls being uh, mutilated on his chest. Bo says a man would come into the room. He never saw his face because either Bo would be blindfolded or the guy's face was covered with a cloth. Bo would be handcuffed, sitting cross-legged on the floor. Bo says the guy would pin his legs down, push him against a wall, and then cut his chest with a razor blade. Don't, don't think one or two cuts at a time. Think, like, probably between 60 to 70 cuts at a time. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, I think I came away with a strong feeling that he has suffered enough and should not uh, go back to jail. Um, I'm sure that new episodes that uh, plunge into how difficult it was to search for him and all the stress that other soldiers soldiers were under might change that. But I did feel that this was less of a plot development episode than sort of a rumination on like how bad things can get. And also the sort of moments of, of kindness, the glimmers from like the old man who uh, said that Bo could eat bread out of his mouth. He wasn't a dirty infidel. Um, and the cook who gave him a blanket, I found those moments incredibly moving and actually cheered up a little bit, which might be my own lameness. But what did you think? I will be honest, this was the first episode of the season where I sort of wondered if Serial had lost its way a little bit. Uh, Mm. The big problem, it seems to me, is that this is a narrative that we know from the beginning to the end, really. Like, we know that that he wandered off, and then we know that he was picked up by the Taliban, and then we know that he was there for five years and then was released uh, in a a prisoner exchange, and and now the story's unfolding with his the court proceedings against him. But um, with an episode like this, well, it, it... it's covering a span of time that's the the four years of his captivity, years two through five of his captivity. Uh, the first year contained escape attempts. This, the, this subsequent four years don't really, apart from the kind of grueling attempt to scrape his way out of the cage, um, which is fascinating and, and gripping, but um, we know it's not going to succeed. And it seemed to me that the show was sort of running up against the problem of not having a story in the sense of a narrative. Hmm. Um, well, it was definitely 
creating an atmosphere more than advancing a plot. Yeah, and, and, you know, I'm down with atmosphere. I'm usually, like, there for the small telling details and stuff like that. Um, But if the point of Serial is to be, let's say, an episode of This American Life that has 8 or 10 or 12 episodes to breathe, then this was maybe a point where I felt like we do we need this much space for this story to breathe. I mean, I mean, the most interesting things I thought in here were things like, you know, that about the Hakani network and how that worked. Mm-hmm. And just this idea of, like, the golden chicken, the idea of him, like, okay, if you are a, um, a person, you know, who's been battling various Western invaders or whatever for longer than your lifespan, what is it, like, what, what is it, what does he mean to them? And it sort of reflects back on the, sort of our notions of whether or not we think of um, a young Taliban-like guy being a human being. And how complicated that world is, which is something that you certainly don't see in our, you know, presidential campaign right now, for example. Sure, absolutely. Right. A lot of it reminds me of uh, the early days of the war on terror when we invaded first Afghanistan and then Iraq. And, and there were ideas about, you know, the Taliban as a monolithic entity. And, mm-hmm. and then it would turn out that, oh, actually, in a place like this, uh, the regional and tribal divisions Completely. are so profound and so passionate that the, any our idea of, uh, you know, national borders and national governments just Completely. don't map properly onto those parts of the world. Uh, and I thought that was that point was very interestingly made by David Rode when he talked about the relationship between the Taliban and, and the Pakistani government in the border area and the Completely. way in which he had expected... And the that, Pakistani Taliban. Yes, exactly. And, yeah. yeah, it's just really... And how he expected that the Pakistani soldiers w- would obviously be interested in rescuing prisoners who had been taken by the Taliban, but in fact, that's not the way it works at all. They're just waving at each other. Exactly. Yes, speaking of terrorist handshakes, but I was wondering, actually, um, did you guys have a problem with the way um, that sort of information dump, the fascinating information dump about all the geopolitical alliances going on between Pakistan and Afghanistan and the Taliban's of those two countries and the Haqqani network, like the way all of that was framed? Because I just thought it was really interesting. And she kept saying, all right, stay with me. Here goes. Like, I know this is grueling. And it, it felt um, all the handholding and the sort of qualifications felt a little bit condescending to me. Another example of this would be when she says that she has experts numbers that you can call if you would like further clarification. If you've been reading the paper, maybe you're caught up on all this. If not, I have some phone numbers for experts you can call. She's afraid, I think, that she... Well, I asked her, said, I said, who do you speak to for this show? And she said, mm-hmm. I speak to my mother. And, I mean, I know a lot of writers say that and that kind of thing. And I do think it's, you know, when she is... She's trying to not be condescending, but at the same time, she's also trying to be... Um, clear. Clear and friendly. I mean, I think about this... Well, you know, you see... Uh, um, you saw the big short, right? And, uh, like, the question of that is, like, was that, like, a cloying the way they describe those things or was it actually useful because it actually like for people who didn't know about it they then knew about it I, I don't know it I found it a little cloying but I mean like and I found yeah, certain things just, that she does a little cloying mm-hmm. but at the same time I don't know maybe I, I you know read too much or something I don't know <laughs> it did seem just kind of mealy mouth to me like have faith in the interest and in the inherent integrity of your material like this is really cool stuff and your listeners are there with you so um, but I can see the competing uh, argument, too. I thought there were there were two points. There was the point that Katie mentions, but there was also the moment when she's talking about Bergdahl in captivity, and she says, 
it's really hard for me to imagine what it was like for him at that time. But at some point I realized, I don't actually understand what is going on. It was like the whole thing was overlaid with a scrim. Where exactly is he? Who exactly is holding him? I couldn't tell what the Taliban and the Haqqanis wanted or expected. Why is he being moved? Why is he being ignored? I couldn't tell if his treatment was senseless and haphazard or if it was part of a plan. Both descriptions are vivid. That's not the problem. The problem is they're mainly from inside a room. Bo couldn't see what was happening outside. So I couldn't make order of it because Bo himself couldn't make order of it. And so she says, uh, we're going to bring in David Rode, who had a similar experience, but who, who was able to see more of what was going on and has a broader perspective. And that will help sort of contextualize what happened to Bergdahl. And that seems like a very direct and explicit confrontation of the limitations of her material. Hmm. I actually, I had a different initial response to the David Rode story. I sort of felt like that was the strongest symptom that maybe Serial had lost its way because it just seems like they had started to open up a vein in the ground or whatever, and then there wasn't all that much ore there. And so they said, oh, shoot, well, let's find someone that we can actually talk to and someone who had a parallel narrative and now we'll like go deep into his experience. And it was really interesting. But I also am, it did feel a little bit fluffy. Um, I can see the argument again for putting it in, but, uh, you know, likewise. And he plugs when his book in the end. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you really want to know about and, this. Yeah. You don't and want us to mention your article? <laughs> no, no, no. It's just funny. It's just, it's interesting. Like, if you want to know more, you know, I mean, in some, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like, in some ways, you're almost like, well, why isn't that the story? Here? Yeah. It's his, but I guess people don't really, aren't as sympathetic to another journalist. Well, and part of the promise of the series is that here's Bo Bergdahl, who you've read about, but now we're going to get inside of his head for the first time. That's, that's part of what they're offering. Um, and well, how much how much do we want to be there, really? How do how many episodes inside his head do you, do you have? Before we move on, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Casper. Don't go another year sleeping on an uncomfortable mattress. You deserve a good night's sleep, and now it's easy. Casper provides an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. These mattresses have just the right sink and just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together for better nights and brighter days. Even better is the risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. These are American-made mattresses that are affordable. $500 for a twin-sized mattress and $950 for a king-sized mattress. Comparing that to industry averages, that's an outstanding price. Don't wait. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash spoiler and using promo code SerialSpoiler at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Since we were talking about all the tangled alliances and stuff, there's no real reason for all her, like, hemming and hawing about including this difficult, quote-unquote, difficult information. There's no real reason that we need to know every single reason that Pakistan tolerates the, the Haqqani network. Like, she laid out all these very precise, uh, historically specific uh, reasons. And we didn't actually need to know all that background. I thought it was really cool, but, you know, it wasn't necessary. Again, that could have been perceived as more padding. I think the problem in a way is even bigger than that. It's that it's not clear what we do or don't need to know at all. Like, mm -hmm. what if they had left mm -hmm. out all of those questions, which are really interesting? They would have lost a lot of really interesting material, and yet the story of Bo Bergdahl is sort of unaffected. There's a guy who was kidnapped by the Taliban and held prisoner and then released. And 
You know what I mean? So yeah. it's great that you can then expand outwards in these different directions and learn about the relationship between the Taliban and the Haqqani network and the Pakistani government and the Pakistan's conflict with India. It, that only makes the material more interesting, makes the show more interesting. But the absence of a, a, a connection to the narrative means that it all feels a little unfocused. I think that's true. I think it's there's a bit of a bait and switch going on here where they think that they're pretending they're going to you're going to find something out about him and I don't think you really will find out that much. If you I mean if you even read the uh, um Michael Hastings piece about yeah, in him in Rolling Stone. In Rolling Stone, you basically have a pretty good idea what the kind of guy he is. And you, I don't think you're going to find out that much more. I think that the idea is like, oh well actually what we're going to do is we're going to you the listener don't know that much about Afghanistan. You sort of tuned out like we had. So let's explain what Afghanistan was really about. And all its complexity. And I do think that's actually part of what their agenda is here. They're kind of like trying to teach you something. And that they're using this story as a frame on which to hang a lot of very yeah. interesting explorations of geopolitics and, and a part of the world that we know is very important, but we don't always know about or understand in, in right. proper detail, in proper right. granular detail. Um, at the same time, it occurs to me that at this point, in the absence of any larger form of suspense... The largest, the, the greatest interest I have in serial right now is the kind of meta-journalistic suspense of watching these very, very talented people make this show in real time for a huge audience under what must be a great deal of pressure and not really know if they're going to succeed or not. It's like watching someone on a high wire and watch them start to teeter. And, and <laughs> maybe that's a failure of technique on the high wire, but it also makes the performance very interesting. Yeah, and, and, and as journalists, I feel the same way. You know, if I was just a listener, I don't know. I don't know what, uh, I don't actually don't know how it's doing. Um, but so I don't know. I mean, I don't know, I don't know if, this, if, this is, if this is not going to do as well. My guess is, is it won't as the last one because the last one was just a really, I mean, it was a really fortuitous combination of things, um, including yeah. a really re recognizable like genre, which is like a, you know, like did he do it? And, you the know. Most, uh disturbing theory I have heard so far for why season two is not doing as well as season one is that the most poetical subject in the world is a beautiful dead girl and season two lacks a beautiful dead girl. Um, so people have moved on instead to making a murderer <laughs> and oh, other yeah. beautiful dead girls. Um, but I do know anecdotally, you know, I used to text feverishly with friends um, right after serial season one every episode, and now we're not really doing that anymore. Um, it just doesn't seem to be appointment listening in the same way, mm -hmm. although I still enjoy it. Well, and presumably the mystery format is sort of geared towards that kind of appointment listening in a way that nothing Absolutely. else is, right? You want to get the mm -hmm. new information in order to put together your theories, and, and that was what was so compelling to people the first time around. And also, I mean, the first one is also sort of inviting people to project onto it. And this one, they're kind of saying, well, your projections are screwed up. You know, there's something wrong with you for projecting, like, you know, like Mark Bull saying, like, well, I just assumed he's a Taliban sympathizer or these other people like projecting these various things. And she's saying, no, 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 no. Let's take a broader, bigger view for this. And whereas the first one was really kind of inviting you to go like, well, he's innocent. He's guilty. He's like all these other kinds of much more kind of visceral kinds of uh, um, uh, human responses. It's taking a hot situation and trying to cool it down. Completely, yes. Rather than taking a, a situation most people don't know about and, right. and showing you how, how compelling and, yeah, and how completely. much energy there is in it. I do think that sanity and fantasy are emerging as kind of sleeper themes for this season of Serial. Sort of was 
Bergdahl fortified by the vibrant inner life that caused him to walk off the base in the first place? Is that why he managed to be okay, even though he turned away from those comforts when he was actually in prison? Why would he do that? I mean, if I had the kind of imagination that he had, I'm sure that I would definitely withdraw into those stories just to avoid being where I was. Um, I just think that the question of um, what makes Bo tick and is he normal, is he sort of idiosyncratic and veering into crazy um, is really interesting. What that makes me wonder is, uh, you know, he walked off the base because he couldn't tolerate what was going on there. He says because there were abuses of power happening. Um, he couldn't take it being a, a, an ordinary grunt on a desolate Afghanistan army base, which must have been a terrible experience, and I, I'm sure I couldn't take it either. Um, and, and so he walked away from there. He found himself more able to tolerate a situation in which he was a prisoner in captivity. I wonder if there was something about that that seemed more heroic, where he's this one man alone in a difficult situation, being treated horribly, but in the center of what he's got to know is going to be an international incident. I wonder if that was somehow more comfortable for him psychologically. Well, I mean, he said that he was trying to provoke a dust one. I mean, he said that in the beginning. He was trying to say, I I'm important. To be fair, if he could have provoked a dust one that would have gotten him out of Taliban captivity, I'm sure he would have done that too. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like, oh, well, he hadn't quite reached the breaking point. But I think you're right. Like maybe there was something to the sort of heroic contours of the situation that like kept him going. I was wondering whether you guys had sort of a grand unified theory of how the Taliban are coming across and what Serial's attitude towards the Taliban are. Like, are they being uh, portrayed empathetically or as villains or somewhere in between? Are we supposed to sort of thrill to the moments of kindness or think that they're monsters? I think the Taliban is where we get Sarah Koenig doing what she does best, which is taking something that is unclear and with a really sort of open-minded curiosity, just exploring it, finding out what it's like, foregrounding her assumptions and her surprise, and and, sort and complicating of, it. Yeah, making it more complicated and and letting us in on the process by which it becomes more complicated for her. And yet, also the, one of the confusing things, at least journalistically, about about the show is that, you know, she that, that a lot of the Taliban stuff is spoken kind of ventriloquized through um, Sammy. Sammy. And that I find that really weird because the first episode, I honestly thought that she was actually, I guess second episode, talking to a Taliban. But actually he was talking to a guy who talked to Taliban who was talking as if he was that these various people. And that was, while makes it easy to listen to, it's a little bit confusing. Yeah, it seems like it's a convention from radio where if you use an interpreter, you can use the interpreter's material. But they're not using an interpreter. They're using a reporter. He's he's reporting on conversations mm -hmm. that he had previously. Yeah. He's not translating something that he's hearing at the time. And yet the show certainly uses it in in first-person ways. They don't... I mean, they tell you explicitly that, that this is Sami Yusufzai, who, who's a right. reporter who did this research for us. But then we hear the voice, and they do frame it as though it's the voice of his sources talking. Before we move on, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash serial spoiler and browse the over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash serial spoiler. That's audible.com slash serial spoiler and get started today. 
Audible content includes more than 180,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. If you're interested in more American military intrigue, you might consider The Pentagon's Brain, an uncensored history of DARPA, America's top-secret military research agency, by Annie Jacobson, the true story of the Defense Department's most secret, most powerful, and most controversial military science R&D agency. Start your free trial today by going to audible.com slash serial spoiler. Carl, since we've got you, you spent some time with Sarah Koenig and uh, the makers of the show. After doing those interviews and that research, what does it feel like to listen to Serial? Does it feel different? I mean, a little bit. But, you know, I'd already spent, you know, all those hours listening to the first season. Part of what I thought was kind of fun about it was the idea that when you have like a, a show that's on the radio, you don't really know what people look like. And you don't really know, um, you know, what they're actual sort of what they're actually sort of like in the world. You know, you sort of have this expectation that it's this sort of this big media operation that she is some sort of, I don't know, you know, she's like Barbara Walters or something. You know, mm. uh, this sort of you know podcast, this sort of queenly podcast presence. But she's not. She's like you know in this little walk up, uh, um, you know, of a, uh, of, of a of an office building, you know, near the Penn State campus. I mean, she does come across as sort of an every woman in her podcast, at least. I mean, do you have a sense of what persona she's cultivated in Serial and how that differs exactly from um, the way she is in real life? Is there a difference? We have to remember she's been, she was on This American Life for years. So she, you know, and this definitely comes out of the rhetoric and the sort of, um, you know, I mean, the, the, the personality of This American Life, the sort of, you know, way that it's, um, you know, very articulate, but also very sort of casual in its language. And, you know, you also have to remember that, and this is one of the things I thought was kind of fascinating, is I listened to them while they went through the script of the second episode. And, I mean, it's, it's written, like, it's, in, it's a script. You know, she really does, like, all those asides, all those pauses, like, everything is done um, with the meticulousness of any sort of, you know, um, you know, Sunday morning, you know, on CBS News or whatever, you know, like any of those shows like that. It's a very, you know, exacting thing that comes across as being very informal. One of the things you describe in, in your piece is the way in which Koenig and, and everybody else who's making Serial are, are facing a, a sort of difficult second album problem, the way in which they had this big hit and and they want to do something that's very different and they know that they can't expect everyone to just automatically come along for that. Well, that's sort of been the subject in some ways of this podcast as well, right? Yeah. The, I, I mean, mean, y'all have been talking about like the confusion in some ways. You're like, well, what exactly is this? And, and, and what, are we, what are we expecting here? And what, what are the differences between this expectation and what they've done. Did you get a sense of how they conceived of the differences between season one and season two? I do know that they, they were they were very, you know, they, they they created this sort of powerful sort of machine, and you know, and and a personality people were interested in following. And, they, and I think they were a little confused over like, well, what is the right thing for us to do next, and how do we do it? And they but they they didn't want to do the same thing. I think it, ha- it speaks to sort of just their, um, I don't know, kind of liberal arts ambition or something. <laughs> yeah. The detail that, that I was surprised by and sort of struck by in your piece was that they had two other possible stories that they were revving up to do, uh, but that they were having a hard time getting done in time. And then all of this tape fell into their laps, this uh, Mark Ball's interviews with Bo Berkdahl. Uh, and, and so they wound up going with that, partly because they had a sort of head start by having all of this material already recorded. Does knowing that make the second season feel somehow sort of uh, arbitrary or slapped together? 
I think that they didn't necessarily, it didn't, you know, precisely fall on their lap because they were, uh, you know, it had been, they'd been approached about it and uh, about, you know, their advice about what to do with it. I think really, I think Mark wasn't sure how to write the script as well. Like, I think he was having a bit of a, of a, um, of a, you know, he's having a bit of a conundrum of like what the right story is for all kinds of reasons, including that. Um, this would be the script for the movie that he's making. Yes. And, and that's when, that's what this, re- this is research for. Um, because it is actually a small group of people. I mean, you know, it's it's Sarah and like you know three other people basically, and and they're doing the reporting, and then they have to sort of write it up and sort of polish it up as well, and and that's a lot of work. Um, they just not they had this whole like team of researchers out there, you know, and where she's just sort of like um, reading a script that a producer, like a TV producer, produces, you know, um, and changes a few things and, and does it. And also, there's that whole that whole tradition of this American life, which they can write about anything. They can do anything. I mean, it does strike me also that this season is more of a doubling down on this American life's ethos. Like if Serial season one was half, you had a great phrase. You said it was like a postcard of um, a particular unknown uh, time and place. And it sort of comes to life and it's experiential. And that's the kind of story that this American life tells best. Totally. But Serial also was this sort of hard-nosed whodunit reporting extravaganza. And so I feel like... Like this season has dialed back on the sort of fact-based uh, reporting and sort of plunged more into like the texture of the experience. And so it's actually sort of closer to This American Life's home base than Serial Season 1 might have been. It struck me with this episode that the the biggest difference between the her conversations with Adnan in Season 1 and these Mark Bull, Bo Bergdahl tapes is that the, the Adnan conversations... Um, took place over a period of time. They started mm-hmm. well before the show started airing, but then she was still talking to him as she was reporting and investigating. She would ask him about new things. And then as the show began to air, she would keep talking to him and you would hear the the evolution of that relationship along with the story. Absolutely. And he was, re- he, apparently he didn't, she said he, that it's her knowledge, he never heard it, but he would read transcripts of it. That's right. And, and he was at least aware that this thing was going out and she could right. tell him this is what we're putting out and this is how people are responding to it. Whereas these tapes with Bergdahl, what we're hearing this week, we don't know if it was before or after the conversation that we heard on, in the first episode of season two. And, and when we get to oh, right, yeah. the, when we get to the end of this season, we'll still be hearing those same tapes that were all made before this reporting project started for them. Right. And so there's, there's an element of the narrative that isn't actually narrative. That's just a sort of fixed object around which everybody's talking. And that's, you know, interesting. I mean, I find it, you know, I think that a lot of what they're doing with this is again, I think I think you're right. It's about like this American life, which is that you're t- you're taking somebody someplace they wouldn't otherwise be, and you're trying to explain it to them in a way that they wouldn't otherwise, in a very personal way, in a very sort of vivid way, um, in a kind of quirky way, in a human way, in a way that you wouldn't otherwise get from reading the Times or reading somewhere else. I mean, there's you know one of her skills is that she can suddenly take something and give you just this little detail that's almost you'd be like, oh, okay, I see. And that, I mean, I don't know, maybe some people find that irritating, but most of the time I think it really works well.
That's it for this episode. We'll be back next week following the release of episode five of Serial's second season. We ran out of time for listener messages this week, but we love hearing from you, so please keep your thoughts and questions coming. Email us at serialspoilerspecial at gmail.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it to that address. Thanks again to our guest, Carl Swanson. The Slate Serial Spoiler Special is produced by Sam Dingman. We're a production of Slate's Panoply Network. Laura Mayer is our managing producer, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Find us on iTunes and find more great Panoply shows at itunes.com slash panoply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at chabacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.